Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss a recent FDA approval for a specific molecular subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. On November 15th, 2023, the US FDA granted approval to repatrectinib for advanced non-small cell lung cancer with a ROS1 gene fusion. This was based on the single-arm multi-cohort Trident-1 study. To discuss this agent and this lung cancer subtype, I'm joined by two expert thoracic oncologists, household names in our circles. They have experience using this agent. First, Professor Benjamin Bess from Gustave Roussy in Paris, France, where he's the Director of Clinical Research, also the Chairman of the EORTC Lung Group. Benjamin, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. I'm also joined by Dr. Jessica Lin, attending physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, assistant professor at Harvard Medical Center, who presented the updated Trident data at ASCO 2023. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Hello, Stephen. Happy to be here. Jessica, just to, to start the episode, could you provide a little background for the listeners on ROS1 in lung cancer? How common is this alteration? Sure. So ROS1 is an established target in non-small cell lung cancer, and specifically, it's the ROS1 rearrangements that are actionable. The ROS1 gene, it includes a receptor tyrosine kinase. Uh, it's comprised of a large N-terminal domain. There's a hydrophobic transmembrane region, and there's a C-terminal intracellular region that contains the tyrosine kinase domain. It's the chromosomal rearrangements uh, with ROS1 were first described in lung cancer back in 2007. These rearrangements, they result in oncogenic ROS1 fusion transcript and protein that retain the entire ROS1 kinase domain. And this results in the aberrant activation of the kinase and activation of the downstream signaling pathways that promote tumor cell survival and proliferation. Overall, we know that ROS1 fusions are identified in about 1% to 2% of patients with lung cancer. And typically, these tend to be associated with patients uh, who tend to be younger in age at initial diagnosis, who've had minimal smoking history, and have adenocarcinoma histologic type. That said, I always like to emphasize that ROS1 fusions can still be identified in other histologic types, right? Like squamous cell or large cell type, or in patients who've had heavy smoking history. So it's really essential to look for these in any patient with lung cancer, of course, in addition to other validated therapeutic targets as well. Yeah, super important point. Smoking does not protect you from developing a ROS1 fusion. We certainly need to find these. It makes a, a huge difference in management. Uh, on that note, Benjamin, maybe you could tell our listeners about the testing for ROS1 fusions. What's the preferred approach? What's, what's your approach at Gustave Roussy? While there are many ways to uh, uh, screen ROS1, I think uh, the, the, the easiest and the cheapest one might be the immunohistochemistry. It might be, let's say, a pre-screening approach, but the sensitivity and the specificity of immunohistochemistry is not as good as for ALK, for example. So it's absolutely not my preferred option. NGS is probably uh, the easiest and best way to screen because 
Um, ROS1 uh, fusions are predominantly found in light smokers, such as uh, other alteration, EGFR mutation, ALK fusion. So when you face a patient with metastatic disease and a very light uh, uh, tobacco consumption or or even a never smoker patients, you want to screen all these molecular alteration at the same time. So NGS panel on tissue is probably one of the preferred approach. Uh, if you are in a country where NGS access is limited and you want to use a sequential approach, a gene-by-gene gene approach. So you could start, for example, with EGFR by mutation, ALK, immunohistochemistry, and then you want to move to ROS1. Fish might be an alternative, although it's consumed tissue. The uh, last way to screen ROS1 is by liquid biopsies. Um, it's a very interesting uh, approach because we know that it decreases the time from uh, the uh, the the first let's say the first uh, moment where you ask the screening and the time you prescribe a targeted agent probably from 40 to 20 months it's not something that you can access in all the countries uh, and uh, obviously you need a disease that is quite spread to be sure you have enough circulating dna but it's a very interesting approach now, once we find a, a ROS1 fusion, we do know we have targeted drugs available for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. With a ROS1 fusion, the first two targeted agents approved were crizotinib and entrectinib. Crizotinib based on Profile 1001, entrectinib uh, based on Star Trek 1 and 2. But in November 2023, we had the approval of repetrectinib. Repetrectinib is a next-generation ROS1 and TREC tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It has a compact macrocyclic structure that should help it overcome and hopefully prevent resistance. This is also designed to be CNS active. And the approval of repetrectinib was agnostic to Lyme, and it did include patients who had received prior TKI therapy. That's a first for ROS1. The approval was based on the Trident study. Jessica, I know you're involved in this trial. Can you describe the design of this study? Yes, happy to. The Trident 1 it is a global registrational trial. It's a phase 1 and 2 study of Repotrectinib. And the study enrolled patients who had locally advanced or metastatic solid tumors harboring ROS1 or NTREC 1 to 3 fusions. And that's because uh, uh, Repotrectinib is a dual ROS1 and TREC inhibitor. And the trial did allow patients who had asymptomatic CNS metastasis. The phase one study established the recommended phase two dose as the primary endpoint, and this turned out to be 160 milligrams once a day for 14 days, and then 160 milligrams twice a day if tolerated. And I should note the maximum tolerated dose was not reached in phase one. Then the phase two study enrolled six cohorts of patients, and these cohorts were defined by the oncogen driver, so either ROS1 or NTREC123, and also by the treatment history. So the first four cohorts enrolled patients with ROS1 fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer, and then these ROS1 cohorts were divided into the ROS1-TKI-naive cohort, the one-TKI-pretreated and chemo-naive cohort, one prior ROS1 inhibitor, and platinum-based chemo-pretreated cohort. And then finally, two ROS1 TKIs pretreated cohort. 
And then there were two additional cohorts enrolling patients with tract fusion positive solid tumors. Now, the pivotal ROS1 cohorts or the primary efficacy population were the TKI naive cohort and the one TKI pretreated cohort. The primary endpoint for phase two was confirmed objective response rate as assessed by blended independent central review using resist version 1.1. And then the secondary endpoints included safety, uh, patient reported outcomes, and other efficacy endpoints such as duration of response, uh, clinical benefit rate, progression-free survival, overall survival, and then intracranial uh, response rate per mo modified resist uh, 1.1 for patients who had measurable baseline brain metastasis. So we have several different settings where this drug has been studied. Uh, Benjamin, let's talk a little bit about efficacy. Could you summarize how this drug performs as the initial treatment in the first-line setting? So in ROS1 TKI naive patient, uh, 71 patients uh, were <clears throat> eligible for response. As expected, majority of never smoker, 68, uh, 63%, sorry, and 24% of the patients had brain metastasis before any treatment. 24% of these patients receive a prior line of treatment, obviously no TKI, so no crizotinib or no antractinib. These are TKI naive patients. But uh, 22 uh, receive, um, uh, 24 percent receive a chemotherapy without, with or without immunotherapy. On the 71 patient, the response rate, which is a primary objective, is um, uh, 79 percent. Of note, uh, in those patients, some were enrolled in the dose escalation phase, and some were enrolled in the expansion cohort. So at the end, uh, 63 patients were treated at the recommended phase two dose. And in this cohort, the response rate was uh, um, 78%. In terms of duration of response in the old comers, let's say uh, the 71 patient, it was uh, 34 months, but it was not rich in the population treated at the RP2D dose. In terms of PFS in all comers, it's 35.7 months. And in the patient treated at the RP2D dose, uh, it was not rich. The median of all survival is obviously not rich, but 88% of the patients were alive at 18 months. These are, are astounding numbers to have a PFS approaching three years uh, in the all-comer group and, and hopefully even longer in others. What about in the, the previously treated setting? Uh, Jessica, you presented some data at ASCO 2023. Looking at repetrectinib after prior TKI therapy, how effective is this uh, in terms of addressing acquired resistance to crizodinib or entrectinib? There was meaningful activity in this space as well in TKI pretreated patients. And, and, and this is really relevant because as you pointed out, Stephen, until now, we did not really have approved targeted therapy option for patients once they developed resistance to crizodinib or entrectinib. In the Trident 1 study, in the one TKI pretreated and chemo naive cohort, and this cohort included 56 patients, the confirmed response rate with reputrectinib was 38%. The median duration of response here was 14.8 months and median progression-free survival of nine months. 
Now, most of the patients in this cohort had received crizotinib as their prior ROS1 inhibitor. And then in the supportive phase two cohorts, so among patients who had received one prior TKI plus one prior chemo, the response rate was 42%. And then among patients who had received two prior ROS1 inhibitors, the response rate there was 28%. I, I think it's important to note that intracranial responses were seen in patients, um, including in patients that had received prior ROS1 inhibitor who had measurable baseline brain med. The intracranial response rate was 38%. And then among those patients who did not have baseline brain meds, the est estimated 12-month uh, intracranial progression-free survival was 82%, specifically in the one TKI pretreated cohort. So the CNS activity really holds up still after prior ROS1 inhibitor therapy. Um, another aspect to consider, of course, is the molecular data, right? We know that Acquired ROS1 resistance mutations are common after crizotinib or entrectinib, and these result in disease relapse in patients. And one particularly refractory ROS1 mutation that we know about as occurring recurrently in, uh, in patients at progression of crizotinib or entrectinib is the solvent front mutation, uh, specifically G2032R substitution. Repotrectinib was actually designed specifically to be able to circumvent the steric hindrance that's imposed by this bulky solvent from mutation and to be potent against ROS1G2032R. And it was nice to see that indeed in the Trident 1 trial, among those patients who had a known baseline ROS1G2032R mutation in the tumor, uh, repotrectinib demonstrated activity there with a confirmed response rate of 59% and median PFS of 9.2 months. So there was a very nice correlation between um, uh, the preclinical kind of design of the compound and the clinical activity that we're seeing in patients after prior ROS1 inhibitors. I mean, this is a huge unmet need. And when we think of, of these acquired resistance mutations, obviously this is something that would overcome on-target resistance. You wouldn't necessarily expect it to work well for off-target resistance. To that point, Benjamin, is it standard at your institution to rebiopsy and to do NGS, either liquid or tissue, at the time of resistance to a ROS1 TKI? Yes, we, we do rebiopsy, but for research purposes, because um, the, uh, let's say, second line of the treatment after entrectinib uh, or larotrectinib will be a second generation inhibitor such as repotrectinib. So I think it's important to understand the disease, but I like the fact that in medicine, you order a test if it changes your way you treat the patient. And if at the end the liquid biopsy or the tissue biopsy will not change the treatment because you will move from a first generation to a second generation ROS1 TKI, I think that for people it's important to understand that in that case, this is not mandatory. No, that's, that's a great point. Jessica, what's, what's your approach at Mass General to, to acquired resistance to a ROS1 inhibitor? Yeah, my practice is to pursue rebiopsy biopsy for NGS testing at the time of disease relapse. And I follow the same paradigm as Benjamin in, in thinking, what's the reason for doing the rebiopsy? biopsy and, and I, I think it is helpful um, here to inform what could represent the optimal next-line treatment strategy to utilize for an individual patient. Um, and this is especially 
because we now have these several next-generation ROS1 inhibitors, right, like reputrectinib and others as well that are emerging that have potency against the on-target ROS1 resistance mutations. And then we also know that there are off-target mechanisms of resistance that can influence your choice of therapy. Um, just as an example, we have seen MET amplification in entrectinib resistant biopsies, in lorlotinib resistant biopsies. And there, similar to the approach that is being taken in, for example, TKR refractory EGFR mutated lung cancer, there are investigational combination strategies uh, of ROS1 inhibitor plus MET inhibitor that can be considered. It's rare, but we've also seen small cell transformation um, in the TKR refractory setting in ROS1 lung cancer. And that can be critical to detect also to inform uh, how we choose the next histology-specific chemotherapy. I think that uh, you know, rebiopsy is often a luxury we have, uh, and, and I, I do rebiopsy as well, but you know, looking at histologic transformation, getting tissue in particular, while well, a lot of times we, we say it's nice to do, I think we learned from uh, Dr. Zosha Piotrowska at your institution, Jess, that um, it's, it's a lot of times easier said than done. In the ELEO study for EGFR, for example, paired tissue biopsy on a biopsy-only protocol only happened 40% of the time. So I, I do think it's good to to learn about that. I think it's it's an area of, of important uh, a discovery. But I also want to you know, reassure you know, community oncologists, those taking care, that if we're not able to do a biopsy, uh, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily below standard of care either, right? Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know, it is nice to discuss. It's not always feasible to do. What about um, safety and toxicity? What are the, the main side effects of repitrectinib, Jess? In, in Trident study, the most common treatment-related adverse event that we saw emerge on repitrectinib were dizziness, dysgeusia, and paresthesia. I would say dizziness is really the main, most common side effect with repitrectinib. Uh, in the Trident 1 trial, this was reported in 58% of patients, actually. I will mention that this tends to be early onset. So the median time to onset in the study was seven days. And it also tends to be of low grade, manageable with dose reduction or interruption uh, when warranted. The grade three or higher dizziness that was seen in 3% of patients, and none of the patients had to discontinue repotractinib because of dizziness uh, emerging on therapy. And I wanted to mention here that dizziness is an on-target neurologic toxicity of repotractinib. It's actually attributable to the inhibition of TRAC proteins. Um, and TRAC proteins are known to play a role in maintaining the nervous system. And indeed, the other common treatment-related adverse events of repotractinib, like dysgeusia, uh, like paresthesia, those also belong to this class of TRAC inhibition-related neurologic toxicity. And all of these are class-wide toxicities, right? They can be seen with other TREG inhibitors as well, like entrectinib. Hmm. In terms of other relevant findings, uh, just to mention on safety and toxicity in the Trident 1 study, those reductions due to treatment emergent adverse events, those were seen in 38%, and then treatment discontinuation in 7% of patients. And so, Jess, when we think about the step-up dosing approach with repitrectinib, are those the types of symptoms you're looking for, dizziness and, and uh, balance? Absolutely, that's right. In fact, when the uh, phase one study was performed and the dose escalation um, was being pursued, the titration approach was chosen um, 
one of the rationale was to minimize the early onset treatment emergent adverse events like dizziness. And so during those, those first, first 14 days of reprotractinib, when uh, patients are receiving once a day dosing, it's really important to watch out for those early onset neurologic toxicities and make sure that, um, that, that the drug is being tolerated from that perspective be before pursuing the dose escalation to a uh, twice a day regimen. Yeah, important to note that dizziness, as you mentioned, sort of an on-target because of the role track plays in proprioception. But in clinic, dizziness can be described in lots of different ways, right? Like uh, poor balance, gait abnormalities, falls are things to look for. So certainly a very important toxicity. Benjamin, what, what's your perspective um, in your experience with, with repetrectinib, uh, particularly relevant to other ROS1 inhibitors like crizotinib and entrectinib? Lorotrectinib can have a degree of dizziness because it can inhibit track, um, uh, um, but it's crizotinib uh, has uh, no dizziness, but other side effect because it inhibits METs. And uh, one of the um, um, class effect of MET inhibitors are uh, edema, which is something that can be chronic and difficult to manage. I think, as Jessica said, the um, 15 days with the low dose is a very a good way to adapt the treatment, to adapt to these toxicities. And when you go to full dose, patients are ready for that. Um, I remember one of my patients told me, well, you know, it's it's not a big deal. It's a bit like if I was uh, drinking a glass of wine. And uh, I think it might be one of the best way to describe the toxicity. Um, some patients need those reduction, obviously, um, but let's remember that we are dealing with metastatic lung cancer. That is a disease that is highly symptomatic. So when you look on the, let's say, the paper toxicity, the rate of dizziness, you never compare to what were the side effects of the cancer in the patient. And these drugs are so potent that in a few days, the patient will be relieved of dyspnea, bone pain, or even neurologic symptoms due to brain metastasis. So it's really a balance. Of course, dizziness is a concern and you have to deal with dizziness, but uh, the symptoms of the cancer is a real issue in these patients. And being relieved of the uh, uh, symptoms is also a, a huge motivations to go on the treatment and let's remember that all the side effects of the TKI are dose dependent. So with the dose management, usually you can easily find a way to give a chronic dose of a TKI. Excellent point. I really like that approach to management. And yeah, overall, patients feel better when they're taking these medicines as they're responding well to, to treatment. So that's a, a good point. You know, we mentioned that these side effects often are track mediated. And, and another one to keep in mind, I'll just mention for the listeners is, you know, when you do stop an NTRAC inhibitor, sometimes you can see uh, almost a withdrawal phenomenon where you can have uh, these pain sensations, achiness, myalgias afterwards that fades a bit with time. But, but another important thing to keep in mind with, with drugs that target TRAC, um, this is a drug that overall has a favorable benefit to risk ratio. Jessica, the approval was kind of agnostic to line. So how should we use Repetrectinib. Is this a first-line agent, or is this something to save for later lines? Right. Um, as we discussed, Repo is the first ROS1 inhibitor to receive FDA approval for later-line use, including and, and first-line use as well. 
I think based on the activity that's been demonstrated in the Trident 1 study, for those patients who were diagnosed previously and had already started on treatment and are now experiencing disease relapse, uh, REPA will be used as a standard option there for sure. Um, I think it'll be offered as a first-line therapy option as well going forward for patients that are newly diagnosed uh, with advanced or metastatic Rosman lung cancer. In my view, the median uh, progression-free survival data in the TKI-naive cohort, they were very compelling, and so were the CNS efficacy data. But I would also add um, that the Roslan treatment landscape is one that is rapidly evolving and will continue to evolve. There are ongoing clinical trials that we should pay attention to um, of other next-generation ROS1 inhibitors as well. Um, and so I think it'll be really exciting. We're, in, we're at an exciting time where new data are continuing to emerge in this field to advance treatment options for patients. No, I absolutely agree. Benjamin, uh, when this drug is available and, and reimbursed in, in France, where do you think this is the, where do you think is the best place to use repetrectinib? Well, you know that there is this uh, <clears throat> common sense that is best drug first. And uh, you know my position on that and that like very much to challenge this uh, with the potential sequence of first followed by second generation inhibitors. Obviously, we don't have OS data of patients that would receive Creso and then Repo versus Repo uh, first line. And I'm not sure we will get this data I like very much the G-ALEX study. It's a different setting. It's ALK, rearranged NLCLC. But the patient that received crizotinib followed by alectinib, a second generation ALK inhibitor, uh, had the similar overall survival than those patients with uh, treated directly with the second generation inhibitor, alectinib. So we cannot really compare ALK and ROS1. But I like uh, uh, to think that if people start with crizotinib, it's not a mistake. And if the patient is in response with crizotinib, I think the best thing is to go on with the treatment as long as is as efficacy and as long as the tolerance is okay, and then switch to repo as a second line. I I wouldn't like people to say, oh, I have a second generation. Uh, ROS1 inhibitor. My patient is on Creso since nine months. I will switch directly to Repo. I think that would be a mistake. So my answer is that I don't know what is the uh, the best um, option first line, and it will be very interesting to compare the strategy in different uh, um, type of approach. For example, a patient with brain meds, maybe you will have a different approach than uh, uh, another patient. Mm. Good points. We know that ROS1 cancers can often express PDL1, uh, sometimes at high levels, as we saw from uh, Dr. Julian Mazieri's immunotarget study. Jessica, do we know anything about the use of immunotherapy in ROS1 lung cancer? Yes, so we know that the activity of the checkpoint inhibitors as monotherapy in Roswell lung cancer is really marginal. It's truly along the lines of what we observe in the setting of other typical oncogen-addicted lung cancers like EGFR-mutated or ALK-positive lung cancer. These are all tumors that tend to have low tumor mutational burden, uh, and patients tend to have had prior uh, minimal smoking history. 
So in that immunotarget study uh, that you just referred to, Stephen, uh, led by Dr. Mazier, the, the response rate with checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy in the ROS1 subgroup was really modest at 17%. Um, we looked at this together with Dr. Drillen's team um, at, at Sloan Kettering, also with uh, University of Colorado and UC Irvine teams where uh, median time to treatment discontinuation among patients with ROS1 lung cancer when treated with checkpoint inhibitor alone was only 2.1 months. So that's really very, very short. Um, so in my opinion, really no compelling evidence in favor of checkpoint inhibitors in this setting. But I think what this goes to show is that we have to start looking beyond the checkpoint inhibitors, right? And try to engage potentially other immunotherapy approaches for this patient population and other oncogenetic lung cancers. Benjamin, repetrectinib, as, as we mentioned at the top, is also a, a a track inhibitor. Uh, it's being studied in tumors with NTRAC fusions. I know you've presented some of these data before. Could you briefly describe some of the efficacy of repetrectinib in that setting? Sure. So almost 100 patients with uh, uh, track positive uh, uh, tumors were, were treated with repetrectinib. So in uh, the population of uh, the uh, TKI-naive uh, uh, 40 patients, uh, the brain match rates was 22%, quite similar in the TKI pretreated, 25%. Uh, what we can say is that all the patients in the TKI pretreated receive antractinib or larotractinib, but in both cohort, most of the patients, two-thirds, received the previous chemotherapy with or without immunotherapy. So uh, in terms of efficacy for the patient with uh, 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 track positive non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the response rate in the naive patients, 21 patients, was 62%. 43% in the 14 patients that were pretreated with uh, NTRAC TKI. The PFS in the untreated patients is not rich and is uh, 7.4 months in the pretreated patients. Um, a few of the uh, patients, if we take all histology, uh, roughly 50% of them had um, a, a solvent front mutation in the pretreated uh, cohort, and there the PFS was 8.6 months. So clear activity in NTRACT, both in the TKI naive patients and the patients pretreated with antractinib or larotractinib. So I think here again, we can call uh, repotractinib a second-gen inhibitor. Look forward to having that option, uh, hopefully for our patients. As we, you know, as we look at, at the field of targeted therapy, we see that as drugs are very active in the stage four setting, we're moving them up into the stage three, into the stage two, like Adora for resected EGFR, non-small cell lung cancer, and Alina in the ALK setting. Uh, so, Jessica, I, I acknowledge there's not data here, but in the early stage, ROS1 non-small cell lung cancer, let's say stage 2, 3, what do you, what's, your, what's your approach in the adjuvant setting? Yeah, it's been really wonderful to see the ALINA data presented um, and, and to have these effective targeted agents start moving into the earlier stage disease. Right now, my practice in terms of uh, targeted therapy for resected ROS1 lung cancer, I have not personally been using a ROS1 inhibitor uh, in the adjuvant setting. If a trial were done, do I think adjuvant ROS1 inhibitor would confer DFS benefit? My answer is yes, but 
I think in, in the setting of earlier stage cancer after resection, you really have a lot to consider um, in totality, including the optimal duration of therapy, long-term tolerability, and so forth. And, and so I have not been typically uh, using uh, ROS1 inhibitor after surgical resection. I, I also would underscore that my practice is to avoid adjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitor too in this setting, like atezolizumab or pembrolizumab. And this is even for those patients that are known to have high-level pdl one expression in their tumor. Uh, in my mind, there's just no evidence to support that adjuvant immunotherapy confers benefit in these patients. And in metastatic setting too, we know that even high-level tumor pdl one in these patients do not predict meaningful benefit from uh, checkpoint inhibitor use. Yeah, I agree with with those points. I think that you know it's tough to extrapolate every target in the adjuvant setting, and the therapeutic window might be very different there because I think the toxicity of uh, of a ROS one inhibitors, at least the currently available ones, is is pretty different from what we see with osimertinib and electinib. So uh, we'll we'll wait to see if data emerges there. You mentioned no adjuvant immunotherapy after surgery. What about chemo radiation? Are, are you applying the Pacific? model here of dervalumab after chemo rad if there's a ROS1 fusion or, or just observing? My practice is just to observe. Um, I am not using adjuvant dervalumab, uh, uh, or I should say maintenance or consolidation dervalumab after chemo radiation in these patients. And there, you know, I think there's accumulating data against using consolidation dervalumab in patients who have uh, EGFR mutated lung cancer after chemo radiation. And so I'm kind of um, taking a similar approach there. And then for in terms of targeted therapy, I am not typically offering a, a ROS1 inhibitor to follow chemo radiation. Yeah, I'd agree with, with those approaches as well. There's I mean, maybe another argument not to use um, a consolidation development here is that in some countries like in France, the only ROS1 inhibitor available is crizotinib. And we know that uh, crizotinib uh, toxicity after an immunotherapy ca can be quite difficult to manage, in particular, uh, the liver toxicity. So I think if the patient has a rapid progression, it's much safer not to give dermatobab and being able to start directly crizotinib. Mm, that's a great point, too, to avoid putting yourself in a bad situation of using targeted therapy after IO. Uh, a great point. So as of November 2023, repitrectinib approved by the US FDA we're waiting for approval in Europe by the EMA. Uh, but Benjamin, on that point, you know, when we look at repitrectinib, we look at the ROS1 field, crizotinib and entrectinib were approved based on single-arm multi-cohort studies. Uh, repitrectinib now entering the foray. Do you think we need a randomized study against chemotherapy, for example, to confirm that the role of repitrectinib here? No, I think the data are sufficient, but um, the field has changed quite a lot. Uh, I'm sure EMEA will give an approval. Will it be a conditional approval uh, pending uh, 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 results of a randomized trial? I don't know. Payers might be uh, sensitive to uh, randomized data, in particular in the first line uh, setting. They might give uh, uh, refund the drug as a second line. So there is a trial that is planned called Trident 3 uh, that should start recruitment uh, early 2024 uh, that will randomize repatrectinib to crizotinib in 230 patients. Um, but it's, uh, um, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, 
clinicaltrials.gov, it says that the recruitment should uh, last for five years. And I'm not sure when you see the level of evidence uh, we see on on the huge cohort of patients with ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer, I, I think this is unnecessary, but, uh, you know, payers have a different dogma sometimes. Hmm. And in five years, as Jess was alluding to, the field may be completely different. Uh, and so we'll have to stay tuned. There are a bunch of other things I wanted to go over, but we we are at time. And so I want to close this episode. I want to thank both of you for coming, for making time in your incredibly busy schedules. Jessica, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. And Benjamin, thanks for being our guest with us today. Thank you very much, Stephen. And of course, thanks to both of you for all the contributions to the field for moving it forward. It's so gratifying to see so much progress in ROS1 uh, and, and really much more to come. I want to thank everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in to give a listen. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 